The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Natalie. 
Let's pray together. Father, your word, as uh, Psalm 19 says, is more to be desired than gold and sweeter also than honey. So help us, Lord, to, under, to understand its value, to, to see that, and also to taste its sweetness this morning, and of course to experience its power in our lives through the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's no doubt that what happens in Genesis 22 is memorable, right? I mean, this story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his own son and then calling it off at the very last moment is so dramatic, it's hard not to remember. Uh, I remember not too long ago, I was um, just reading and, and stumbled across an article that was speculating in a rather humorous fashion about what things must have been like between Abraham and Isaac after the events recorded in this chapter. The title of the article, which was uh, written as satire, was Historians Believe Isaac Declined All Father-Son Camping Trips After the Incident. (laughs) Uh, The article reads, just really quick, following the publication of an influential paper presented at a, a conference exploring Isaac's troubled relationship with his father Abraham, Most historians now believe that Isaac found excuses to avoid hikes, camping trips, and father-son wilderness outings with his dad after what the family delicately termed the incident. The article then goes on to explain that although some scholars have theorized that the incident ruined Abraham and Isaac's father-son relationship, a deeper archaeological and linguistic analysis shows that Isaac was still warm toward his father, but that he did try to avoid any outdoor excursions with his dad from that point on. Scholarly consensus is now that the patriarch could only convince his son to spend times with him for indoor bonding experiences or outdoors if Isaac could confirm that there would be plenty of witnesses present, and that after the incident, Isaac became jumpy and took to monitoring his, moods, his father's moods very carefully, keeping a distance of several feet from Abraham whenever the two of them went out together. Now, again, all that's obviously just written to make us chuckle a little bit, but it does highlight the dramatic nature of this, uh, these events here in Genesis 22. And in order to fully appreciate just how dramatic these events were, you have to understand a few things about the context here. Ever since Genesis 12, we've seen God promising Abraham repeatedly that he would have a son. We find these promises in Genesis 12, 2, Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 15, 4, Genesis 17, 4, Genesis 17, 16, and Genesis 18, 10. All of these verses record specific promises from God that even in his old age, he and Sarah's old age, Abraham and his wife would have a son. In fact, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this promised child is what the entire narrative 
of Genesis 12 through 20 has been focusing on and looking forward to. The suspense gradually builds throughout these chapters. Then, in Genesis 21, we read about God finally fulfilling his promise. We looked at that last week, right? At long last, after 25 years, this child, Isaac, is finally born. Even though Abraham's wife, Sarah, is now 90 years old and obviously well past the typical age for childbearing. So Isaac's birth was clearly miraculous and undoubtedly brought immense joy to both Abraham and Sarah. However, right on the heels of all that excitement in Genesis 21, we read about a shocking turn of events here in Genesis 22. Now, at this point, Isaac's probably about 10 or 12 years old, and we're told in verses 1 and 2, after these events, or after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So just stop right there and imagine how shocking this must have been for Abraham. Can you imagine this sick feeling that must have immediately gripped Abraham's stomach as soon as God said this to him? Now, for us today, we might compare it to maybe receiving that dreaded phone call that uh, a loved one has been in a terrible car accident and had to be life-flighted to a hospital and isn't expected to make it. That's how Abraham must have felt when God told him this. On top of that, this command is all the more shocking, both for Abraham and for us as the readers, because it seems to contradict what we know about God's nature. The God of the Bible isn't at all the kind of God who would desire human sacrifice. In fact, in, Genesis, or in Jeremiah 32, 35, God even refers to the practice of human sacrifice as an abomination. So how then could he possibly be commanding Abraham to do such a thing here in Genesis 22? And to make all of this even more perplexing, remember how central Isaac was to God's covenant with Abraham. God had made a covenant or a sacred agreement with Abraham to make of him a great nation and had even promised him that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations and that through him, blessing would flow to the entire world. God then confirmed this covenant several times and made it clear that it would all be accomplished through Isaac specifically. Isaac was the key to it all. But now God's telling Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice? Like, how could that be? That would seem to contradict everything God's been promising to Abraham throughout the past several decades. So how does Abraham respond? 
Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So Abraham doesn't hesitate or try to negotiate or argue with God. Instead, he just obediently sets out on this journey to the place God told him to go. The story then continues to unfold in verses 4 through 8. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Notice in these verses two indications of Abraham's faith in God. Besides the obvious indication that he set out on this journey in the first place. Uh, In verse 5, while they were still a little way off in their destination, Abraham says to the young men who were traveling with him, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham seems to be expecting to return to them, not by himself, but with Isaac. Then a little later, when Isaac asks him where the lamb is for the burnt offering, Abraham tells him in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, it's not entirely clear from that statement whether Abraham's speaking figuratively and actually referring to Isaac as the lamb or whether he's expressing confidence that God will provide a literal lamb to take Isaac's place. But either way, he has faith that God will provide. That's what he says. God will provide. We then read in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, up to that point, I'm sure Isaac was having a pretty good time with his dad. Uh, He was probably thinking that this is a pretty cool, you know, wilderness excursion. But then when Abraham does what we see him doing in this verse, I'm sure Isaac was like, "Um, dad, what are you doing here? Like, you're kind of starting to freak me out, make me a little nervous. Yet incredibly, we have every indication that Isaac was obedient. Presumably, as a a teenager, he would have been physically able to overpower his 100-plus-year-old dad, or at least outrun him. And yet, he obediently allows his father to tie him up 
and lay him on the altar. After that, verse 10 tells us, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So you got to give Abraham credit here. I mean, he's actually going to go through with this. Thankfully, though, at the last possible moment, God stops him from harming his son. Verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So now the angel explains to Abraham that it was all a test. And at that point, I'm sure Abraham breathed a huge sigh of relief and ran over and untied his son and gave him the biggest hug he'd ever given him in his life. And the angel of the Lord tells Abraham in verse 12, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. To fear God in this context doesn't literally mean being afraid of God. Instead, it was a common phrase in the Old Testament that uh, referred to being wholeheartedly devoted to God. Uh, for example, in, one, in Psalm 130, verse 4, we see that a person's fear of God is actually bolstered by God's grace and forgiveness. So the more you know of God's grace and forgiveness, the more the psalmist fears him, which wouldn't make sense if the fear of God was a reference to being afraid of God. So when Abraham's told, now I know that you fear God, we can probably interpret that to mean something like, now I know that you're devoted to God and that you trust God more than anything else. So the main idea of this passage is that Abraham demonstrates remarkable faith in being willing to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Again, Abraham demonstrates remarkable faith in being willing to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. You know, throughout these past 10 chapters of Genesis, we've seen Abraham do very well spiritually in some instances, but also very poorly spiritually in other instances. But without question, this right here is Abraham at his best. On several previous occasions, Abraham had taken things into his own hands and behaved deceitfully and shown an unfortunate lack of faith in his conduct. But here in Genesis 22, it seems like Abraham has grown in his faith exponentially. Instead of trusting in himself and his own clever schemes as he had done on previous occasions, Abraham puts his total trust and confidence in God. And it's for this reason that he's commended in what's often known as the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, right? He, he didn't know if God was going to raise Isaac from the dead or what. But he had faith that one way or another, God would show himself faithful. And so Abraham was willing to surrender the situation into God's hands. So what about you? Have you been brought to the point in your spiritual life of absolute surrender? Have you determined to let God direct your life instead of you trying to direct it? Have you moved over to the passenger seat so that God can take his rightful place in the driver's seat? of your life. And this isn't just theoretical either. You can be sure that from time to time, you'll find yourself in the midst of real situations that'll reveal whether you're truly walking in faith and surrendered to God. I read a news story a couple of weeks ago about James Raymer, the goalie for the San Jose Sharks hockey team. Like many NHL teams, the Sharks recently hosted a Pride Night uh, during one of their games. And this Pride Night, of course, uh, featured the LGBT-themed uh, jerseys with rainbow colors and things like that. But James Raymer courageously refused to wear one of the jerseys and instead put out the following statement. He says, under the umbrella of the NHL's Hockey is for Everyone initiative, the San Jose Sharks have chosen to wear jerseys in support of the LGBTQIA plus community tonight. For all 13 years of my NHL career, I have been a Christian, not just in title, but in how I choose to live my life daily. I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and in response, asks me to love everyone and followed him. I have no hate in my heart for anyone, and I've always strived to treat everyone that I encounter with respect and kindness. In this specific instance, I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in my life. I strongly believe that every person has value and worth, and the LGBTQIA community like all others, should be welcomed in all respects to the game of hockey. So, there you go. I mean, that is how it's done. Now, I'm sure James Raymer understood that uh, just what was at stake here and how a lot of people res would respond to this Twitter announcement, which was actually posted on the official San Jose Sharks Twitter feed. And, and he understood, you know, what this could mean for his career. Yet in faith, he surrendered the situation into God's hands and acted in accordance with his biblical convictions. And there are plenty of other situations that uh, reveal whether or not we're truly walking in faith 
and surrendered to God. Of course, the vast majority of them aren't anywhere near as dramatic as the situation James Raymer found himself in, which involved him having to take a stand like that in front of millions of people. But these situations are nevertheless significant. For example, God calls those of us who are Christians to live as missionaries in the various spheres of influence in which he's placed us. However, some parts of the gospel message that we're called to share are potentially offensive to some people. So sharing the gospel involves a certain level of risk. Now, of course, we should try to share the gospel in a loving and winsome and diplomatic way. But the fact remains that no matter how loving and winsome and diplomatic we are, there's always the chance that some people might not respond very well and might want to distance themselves from us from that point on. Sharing the gospel could change our relationship with someone. So we have a choice to make. Will we shrink back from sharing the message God's called us to share? Or will we surrender the situation and the relationship to God and faithfully share the message God calls us to share and leave the results to him? Or perhaps we find ourselves in a situation in which we're put to the test financially. Maybe we sense God leading us to contribute a certain amount of money to the advance of the gospel. And yet the thought of giving at that level just makes us feel anxious. I mean, after all, what, uh, what if we have some unexpected bills that we can't pay? In the future? Or what if we find ourselves at some point in a financial predicament and we could really use that money? There again, we stand at a crossroads, right? Will we live lives that are driven by fear or lives that are driven by faith? Will we disobey what we sense God leading us to do or will we surrender? our financial situation to God and trust that God's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for our needs. Or to give one final example, maybe we're single and uh, deeply desire to be married. However, our efforts to find a godly spouse seem to be going nowhere. So we might be tempted to settle for a spouse who just isn't very devoted to the Lord. At that point, again, we have a decision. Will we take things into our own hands and disobey and, and, and disobediently marry that person? Or will we surrender our lives and our future to God and determine to remain single until God brings someone along to be our spouse who's truly devoted to him? So hopefully all these scenarios are helpful in illustrating the various ways in which our faith, like Abraham's, is often put to the test. 
So ask yourself, in what way do you need to exhibit faith in your life right now? What situation do you need to surrender to the Lord? And I'll tell you that in most of these situations, there are idols in our hearts that we're holding on to. After all, that's what makes the situation so difficult for us, right? These situations are difficult precisely because there's something that's functioning as an idol within our hearts. An idol, in this sense, is anything that's displaced God from his rightful position of being first in our lives. Anything that we love more than we love God, anything that we trust instead of trusting God, anything that we hope will do for us something that in reality only God can do. For Abraham, it seems likely that he was in danger of making an idol out of his son Isaac. Although we'd obviously expect Abraham as a father to have a natural and healthy love for his son, it's not hard at all to see how he might have been tempted to go beyond that and begin idolizing his son and looking to his son to provide the satisfaction that only God can provide. And so God gives Abraham a not-so-subtle reminder in Genesis 22 that nothing, not even Isaac, can be allowed to take the place of God in his life. So as we think about this passage, it's probably a good idea for us to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves what idols might be present within us and hindering us from following God faithfully and interfering with our ability to live lives that are surrendered Tim Keller, in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, helpfully identifies 16 uh, different kinds of idolatry that I think are worth mentioning, just listing very briefly as we seek to uh, uncover whatever idols uh, we might be worshiping. So as I go through these, just think about which of them might be ruling and driving your life. Number one is power idolatry, having power and influence over others. Number two is approval idolatry, being loved and respected by a certain person. Number three is inner ring idolatry, having a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group letting us in. Number four is family idolatry, having our children and or parents happy in general and happy with us. Number five is relationship idolatry, having Mr. or Ms. Wright in love with us. Number six is comfort idolatry, having a certain kind of pleasurable experience or particular quality of life. Seven, is control idolatry, getting mastery over our lives in a certain area. Number eight, helping idolatry, having people being dependent on us and needing us. Number nine, 
is dependence idolatry. Having someone there to protect us and keep us safe. Ten, independence idolatry. (laughs) Being completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Number 11, work idolatry. Being highly productive and getting a lot done. Number 12 is achievement idolatry. Being recognized for our accomplishments and excelling in our work. 13, materialism idolatry. Having a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Number 14, religion idolatry. Proudly adhering to our religion's moral codes and feeling accomplished in its activities. 15, irreligion idolatry. Being totally independent of organized religion and living by a self-made morality. And finally, number 16 is image idolatry. Having a particular kind of look or body image. So again, these are all things that can get in the way of living lives of absolute surrender and faithful obedience to God. And by the way, the way we know uh, whether we've gone beyond having a healthy desire for something and crossed the line into idolatry in one of these areas is whether the thing we desire has displaced God in our lives. That's the question to ask. Is there evidence of us desiring something more than we desire God or trusting something instead of trusting God? And perhaps the most common telltale sign or external symptom of the presence of an idol in our lives is actually the presence of another sin usually one that's more easily observed. One theologian named Ed Welch writes that you know something's become an idol if you'll sin in order to get it or sin if you don't get it. Again, the way you know something's become an idol is if you'll sin in order to get it or sin if you don't get it. So thinking about this list of idols that we've just gone through, Which ones are a particular struggle for you? What are the Isaacs in your life? Then once you've identified what those are, understand that God calls you to surrender those to him and to demote them, as it were, to their proper place so that you're serving and loving and treasuring God above them all. Because the problem with these idols, first of all, is that they never do for us what we want them to do for us. They never satisfy. In Jeremiah 2, God compares them to broken cisterns. Listen to God's words of rebuke to the Jews in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory, that is their God, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern back in ancient times was a large hole that people dug in order to store water for when they needed it. It would typically be lined with rocks or some kind of primitive cement to keep the water from draining out. But sometimes this cement seal would be broken. And that's what God compares his people's idols to. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what our idols are. In fact, not only do our idols not satisfy us, they actually end up enslaving us. Therefore, because God loves us so much, he's determined to rid us of these idols, just as he does with Abraham in Genesis 22. And thankfully, Abraham responded in the right way. Will we do the same? Will we lay our idols on that altar? In addition, as we think about what Abraham was willing to do, it's also a wonderful picture for us of what God was not just willing to do, but actually did do. In Genesis twenty-two twelve, God commends Abraham for the fact that Abraham has, quote, not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Does that language remind you of anything? For example, in Romans 8, 32, Paul describes God as the, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And John 3.16 famously tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, in Genesis 22, God didn't ultimately require at the end of the day that Abraham actually sacrifice his son Isaac. But what God didn't require of Abraham, he did, in a manner of speaking, require of himself. As we look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we're reminded of the incomprehensible love God has for his people that would lead him to give up his own son, even for sinners like you and me. Just as God commended Abraham for not withholding his own son, we can worship God for not withholding his own son, but sending him to the cross to pay for our sins. Just as Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain, Jesus carried the wood of his own cross on his back. Also, just as Isaac voluntarily submitted to the will of his father 
Jesus likewise obeyed the will of his father in voluntarily allowing himself to be crucified on that cross. In fact, get this, Jesus was even crucified at what basically amounts to the same location at which Isaac was offered up on the altar. You heard that correctly. The the site at which Abraham built the altar to, to offer up Isaac is basically the same geographic site, or at least no more than a few hundred yards away from the site at which Pontius Pilate would one day have Jesus crucified. And we know this according to Genesis 22 because God told Abraham to go to a mountain, if you'll notice, in the land of Moriah in order to offer up Isaac. Right? So Moriah. We're then told in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And of course, Jesus would later be crucified just a few hundred yards away from the site of that temple. So could it be any clearer that Isaac prefigures Jesus? Yet Isaac isn't the only element in the narrative of Genesis 22 that's intended to prefigure Jesus. In Genesis 22:13, right after God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Notice those two words, instead of. Abraham offered up the ram instead of Isaac. It's in those two words that we find the concept that's at the very heart of the gospel. The concept of substitution. Just as that ram was sacrificed in Isaac's place, Jesus, the the lamb of God, as he's called, bore God, the Father's judgment, in our place. That's the reason Jesus died on the cross. In reality, we deserved to suffer God's punishment for our sins. And yet, in his love, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to die on the cross in our place and as our substitute. Yet, of course, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Instead, three days later, he victoriously resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to rescue everyone who will put their faith in him. So whenever we put our faith in Jesus to to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, he rescues us from both the penalty of our sins and from the power of sin in our lives. So just as Abraham exhibited faith in God in Genesis 22 and thereby obtained God's commendation, we likewise are called to put our faith in Christ in order to obtain Salvation. That involves surrendering every aspect of our lives to God. 
so that he can do in us and with us as he sees fit, just as Abraham surrendered his son Isaac. So have you yet come to that point in your life? Have you put your trust in Jesus and surrendered your life to Jesus and thereby experience the rescue and redemption that he offers? You can do that. God invites you to do that even this very day.